Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, joining us today is uh, Dr. Dustin Jobert, who is an associate professor at the Stephen F. Austin State University in Texas. And uh, I got to give uh, credit to a uh, longtime listener and uh, actually supporter of the show, Mike Lynn, for appointing uh, me towards uh, Dustin's paper, which is a, a comparison of running economy across seven different carbon-plated running shoes. And uh, that is why uh, I reached out to him and uh, asked him to have him join us on the show. Because as, uh, as several of you have uh, have sent me notes about, we have quite a bit of cycling content on Endurance Innovation and uh, the the running uh, the running piece has been a little bit absent in, in our more recent episodes. So uh, Dustin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, joining the show. Um, why don't we start with a little bit of an introduction of uh, of your background in uh, in you know endurance sport and in academia and uh, how it was that you came to study carbon plated running shoes? Sure, sure. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Michael. I'm happy to be here and, and talk about running shoes. So, um, as you as you said, I'm a, a faculty member um, at Stephen F. Austin State University. I um, got a PhD in exercise physiology from Texas A&M. Um, I've been here in my, my current position for going on seven years now um, at SFA, and uh, my interest has always been in endurance sport. Um, so, a lifelong runner, um, did several years of triathlon racing throughout graduate school. Um, and then went back to just the single sport life. Once we had the toddler and a full-time job, it just made life a little easier to just be a runner again. That's kind of yeah, my roots, preaching so. in the choir, man. I hear you. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I sold the bikes and now just buy expensive running shoes, right? <laughs> um, you, you can buy a few pairs of shoes for a, for a nice, uh, a nice bike these days. That's, that's how I've justified it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've always, always been a student of the sport, always been interested in, you know, how to get faster and, so along the way, the, the you know staying in school forever, getting a PhD, doing academic research, it just kind of fit nicely into my hobbies and personal interest and kind of career training. And so, um, you know, over the last several years, um, seeing the the research on these new shoes, um, the so-called super shoes, right, with the carbon plated racers and such, um, got me interested in you know trying them myself and then kind of doing some testing, and that, that kind of led us to where we went with this most recent project. Nice. So when you were uh, trying these things on yourself, I'm just curious, and uh, maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead of the game a little bit. How did you uh, How did you find them purely subjectively when you strapped them on? Yeah. So the the first pair of uh, carbon plated shoes I purchased was the Hoka Carbon X. Mm -hmm. That was a couple years ago. Um, I purchased those, and you know when I put it on, I I could feel the shoe was more rigid. I could definitely feel like since the the carbon plate made the shoe more rigid and right. and I hadn't run in in it in the the Vaporflies or the Nike's line of shoes that had previously been tested and sort of shown to have these big benefits in running economy and presumably performance from there. Um, so I really didn't have anything to compare it to in that sense, but you know it felt more stiff and rigid than a normal shoe to me. So I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. So I trained in that shoe. Um, I've done a lot of racing, but I haven't done any real long stuff. I've only run a couple marathons now in this last year, but I trained for my first marathon back last year. Um, well, I guess would have been throughout 
2020 into 2020 or at my first marathon beginning of 2021. Okay. Um, and so I trained, I trained throughout that, that year in that carbon X shoe, um, raced in it, didn't have a great marathon, but, um, before I bought another pair of shoes, I was, I was due for a new pair. I, I took myself into the lab and did some running economy testing on myself, just some case study testing to see like, am I actually getting this so-called, you know, 4% benefit that the Nike shoes had shown? Am I getting that with this Hoka shoe? Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't getting anything. It was actually pretty much <laughs> equal to, it was equal to the regular like flat that they had that I, that I also huh. had at the time. So, so I was like, okay, well, we've seen some stuff about maybe individual responsiveness. Maybe I'm not a big responder. Uh, maybe the sh- there's something to the shoe. And so, um, I didn't buy another pair of those. I purchased the Nike alpha flies instead. And I was like, well, I can test these out in the lab on the treadmill before deciding to keep them. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I am a responder. I got a good four and a half percent or so running economy benefit out of the alpha fly. Um, so that, that really kind of like, I, I sort of thought, you know, based on anecdotal evidence, what you see athletes running in, what you see people talking about that there's probably some shoes that are performing really well and others that aren't, and maybe some in between. Sure. But that really got me to the point where it was like, man, you look at the published research that's out there and it's all on the vapor fly line. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, three or four studies and they're all on the vapor fly line. All these other companies have come to market now with these carbon plated so-called super shoes for racing of their own. And none of them have been validated. Um, and that, really there's not even, there's definitely not published academic research on them, but there's not even a lot of just like shared data on them. Like these companies had their own personal marketing data on them. That's, that's not even yep. really out there. So, <laughs> so that was kind of eye opening when I did that testing on myself to say, okay, well, there's probably something to this. Let's see if we can get a bunch of shoes and, and figure this out. Um, so that was, that was sort of the impetus for, for the, the project. Oh, that sounds great. So before we dive into the uh, the research that you did itself, let's uh, maybe pull back a little bit and define uh, define some terms. Well, one term specifically, but let's start even further back uh, with the shoes themselves. So um, you mentioned carbon plating and you mentioned the term super shoe. Uh, what is it that makes these shoes uh, noticeably different than shoes that we've seen, uh, you know, let's say even six, seven, eight years ago? Yeah. The definition of what's a so-called super shoe or these these new advanced shoes is probably continually kind of being refined as as more research comes out here. Mm-hmm. I think initially probably some common characteristics you see in what we might call a super shoe was there's a carbon plate in it. So it's increasing the longitudinal bending stiffness or sort of rigidity of the shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, they're highly cushioned. Um, so the stack height, um, the sort of thickness of the cushioning in the shoe is more than we might see in a traditional racing flat where everything was focused on being really light and thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so more cushioning. And then lastly, and probably most importantly is having new foam that is more mm-hmm. compliant. So it can potentially store more energy okay. and more resilient, return more of that. Um, that's probably the most, well, I don't think it's overlooked anymore, probably initially overlooked. Um, and the thing that's actually probably the most distinct across the different brands of shoes still, um, you know, we think of traditional like EVA foams, um, didn't do a great job of like giving a bunch of energy storage in return. Um, and then you had TPU foams that did a little better. And now this, this new age of foam with like Piba, um, or PBAX as like, I think it's a trade name for it, um, based foams being more compliant and resilient. So in some of that initial Nike Vaporfly prototype research, they showed that that, that new foam that's in the, the Zoomex foam, the Piva-based foam in the Nike shoe um, is a lot more compliant and resilient. And that 
that impacts the the energy return properties of that shoe um, and probably is helping with what we'll talk about with this this idea of running economy. Yeah, for sure. So let's uh, let's jump in. What is uh, what is running economy? And uh, um, it, maybe let's start with why why running economy is an appropriate way to uh, compare these different shoes or compare them to the the you know the shoes that came before. Yeah, yeah. So if we go from like a broad standpoint, if we think of like what are your traditional big three endurance exercise or specifically running performance determinants, we think of VO2 max, your maximal aerobic capacity, we think of your lactate threshold, and then the third one, running economy. And running economy is essentially how much energy or how much oxygen you consume while working at a, a fixed running speed. Okay. Um, and so the idea, the idea with that being you want to be more economical and you want to use less energy or consume a lesser percentage of your aerobic capacity while working at any given given running speed. Okay. Um, and so in turn, in turn, what that allows you to do. So we think of that kind of as energy savings, right? If if I can save energy at a given speed, that's great. I, I will maybe deplete my limited energy stores um, over a longer period of time then. Mm -hmm. um, but probably more importantly, when you improve economy, you're you're allowed or permitted to run faster while working at the same physiological intensity. So I, I have no intention to stay at, you know, seven minute mile pace if I can now run 645 mile pace at the same <laughs> intensity, right? So sure. I, I don't really want to stay at seven minute mile pace just to consume less energy. I want to run faster at the same output. Um, and that's really what economy allows allows you to do. So thinking back to like these shoes, being able to store and return more energy, they reduce the workload to run at a given speed and therefore you can run faster at the same same intensity. Yeah, and this is a, a really interesting uh, conversation because we, as I said in the preamble of the show, we we spent a lot of time talking about cycling, and we had a coach, um, uh, Bjorn Kafka, on the show last week who spoke about how you know sometimes when you work to increase VO two max, you actually sacrifice economy. And he was talking specifically on the bike, which is a, a little bit of a different situation because there there is no there is no energy storage mechanism. Whereas with running, because of the you know the nature of the of the movement, there is a lot of energy stored with every with every stride and it's stored in in our tissues obviously and and in this case it's also stored in the in the the sole of the shoe and that's why it's it's such a big deal to have a greater energy return with these with these foams is that right yeah so i think with running you get quite a bit of variability across individuals and in mm -hmm. economy um i think some of the data out there is like 30 percent or so um variability in like running economy um, across individuals. And so it's so multifaceted. There's tons of research out there prior to these shoes being studied more intensively the last, you know, five, six years. There's tons of research on different correlates of running economy, whether it be a runner's biomechanics or um, you get muscles, muscle tendon properties, um, right. stiffness things that you mentioned there. And so, so there's been tons of research on that. The, the shoes are kind of the new factor in this, this larger picture. Cool. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's go back to where you were with your with your Hoka's that that didn't show too much of a, uh, a running economy win for you, and then you tried the Alpha Flies, and you were you were seeing better results. And as you said, that that uh, prompted you to uh, that and the kind of the lack of published data on these other non Vaporfly shoes um, uh, prompted you to conduct this study. So tell us how you went about um, putting it together. What were you what what were the shoes involved? Uh, what was the uh, what was the what was the test parameter? Sure, yeah. So you know the toughest thing with this this shoe research is shoes are expensive. Um, not everyone wears the same size of shoe, right? Right. Um, and then 
if you want to test people at like a fixed speed, we need to have some like inclusion criteria that sort of reigns in fitness level in a certain way. So one of the things I didn't mention about running economy, when we test for running economy, because we're measuring oxygen consumption, we're measuring respiratory gas exchange as an indirect way to determine energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. So we're measuring oxygen consumption and CO2 production. And because of that, to really know how much energy you're expending, we need to make sure that the task is is entirely aerobic in nature. Right. So if we start to push to where anaerobic metabolism at higher intensities is playing a larger role, we're not actually going to pick that up or reflect that with the oxygen consumption values that we're measuring. Makes sense. So because of that, running economy testing needs to be done like sub-threshold intensities. So like below lactate threshold or below OBLOV, four millimoles lactate is, is some of our criteria. Sure. So when you recruit people, if you say, hey, we want to test people at six minute mile pace or um, 16 kilometers per hour, you need to make sure that that's like sub threshold pace for them so they can handle that easy, like in a tempo workout. So, right. um, so I kind of preface with that, but okay. So the shoes, first off we got, we were able to get an internal grant, um, for $3,000 or so mm-hmm. that I was able to get, um, we, we tried to track down, man, this was, you know, over a year ago when we we're about a year ago when we were purchasing these shoes. So anybody who's bought these shoes have probably found at times they're all sold out or they don't have them in your size or you can buy this brand, but not this brand. Um, or maybe you can buy it in the UK, but not here in the U S. So, (laughs) um, so that, that was a big, big hurdle was just trying to get our hands on as many of these new racers as possible at the same point in time in the same run of sizes. And so Mm -hmm. we went, um, with the budget we had, I was able to buy three sizes of shoes. So we got, um, us size 10 10 and a half 11 just yep. expecting that to be from a convenient sample standpoint kind of peak sizing um and we were able to get a hold of eight different shoes so seven seven carbon plated racers and um, we got the nike vaporfly the nike alpha fly we got the hoka rocket x the saucony endorphin pro asics metaspeed sky the new balance rc elite the brooks hyperion elite 2 and so that was a seven carbon plated racing shoes okay kind of marketed as these new super shoes and then we also were able to we wanted a control shoe just a standard standard racing flat and so we used the asics hyperspeed for that mm-hmm. um, so okay. those are the eight shoes that we got yeah and so then yeah talk about your your experiment setup a little bit yeah so from so from there um subject recruitment criteria so the most commonly sort of tested speed in the lit when you look at the vaporfly line of shoes is probably 16 kilometers per hour okay which is a uh, six minute mile pace for um, my U S units here. Um, so to test people at that pace, we need people who are, who can, you know, run significantly faster than that. So our, our inclusion criteria was, um, 1735 K or faster, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, not super fast runners, but competitive age groupers. We had, a, we had a mix of like current collegiate runners and some, you know, um, 30 something more marathon type crowd. Right. Um, but who are who are pretty who are pretty fit? Yeah, they're they're not they yeah, wouldn't be like guys. Yeah. your average recreational runner. They're they're substantially yeah. speedier than that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Seventeen thirty was our inclusion criteria, but we recruited significantly better than that. We I think the average five k best of our our cohort was sixteen minute flat. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. pretty fit, pretty fit guys. Um, so we we ended up with twelve runners that kind of to to power the study statistically. Um, we needed probably in that ten plus range. Right. Um, 
to make comparisons across the shoes. And so you you also needed to make sure that they were like the Cinderella's, right? Like the that the the glass slipper fit on their feet. You couldn't get yeah, dudes so that was with the size nine criteria shoes, was yeah, that. <laughs> or size twelve feet. Yeah, yeah. Size, size ten to eleven with that that running performance. Um, criteria was like the biggest recruit yeah so i'm <laughs> i'm located in like deep east texas it's pretty okay. rural there's not any like major city centers i mean we're two hours from houston we're three hours from dallas okay yep. um so there's not real giant population centers of runners for me to recruit from so yeah. we um luckily for this study you know people were very interested in coming trying on two thousand dollars worth of shoes and figuring out which <laughs> one was best for them so they could decide which ones to buy so we we actually had really committed subjects, but they had to come to the lab twice. And I think the average round trip for each of our subjects was like over 180 miles. Um, so they were, they were committed. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, so we, we got, we got 12 committed subjects to come in that met those criteria. And then for the running economy testing itself, what we do, it's, it's submaximal in nature. So the nice thing is that you can make a bunch of comparisons on the same day. Um, because mm -hmm. if, you, if you're testing this shoe on this day and this other shoe on another day, you get this day-to-day -day variability with your equipment sure. and the individual that makes it harder to make conclusions. So we can actually test all the shoes on the same day on the same person. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you get a lot more consistent data that way. And so they wore all eight shoes um, on each visit to the lab. And we randomized the order that each person wore the shoes. And for running economy, we need you to basically be working for about five minutes um, to so we can see sort of steady state auction consumption and determine right. steady state energy expenditure. So, yep. so we had that, that set set speed of 16 kilometers per hour for five minutes. Um, we measure auction consumption and CO2 production continuously over that time period. And um, they're able to use that steady state period over the final few minutes. Um, that's a pretty, pretty light intensity for most of these subjects. And so mm -hmm. then we still had a five minute break between trials though, so that fatigue shouldn't be a big, big issue or concern. Sure. So five, five minute break between trials where they would switch into the next shoe, um, based on the random order they were assigned. And so, so they did eight, five minute trials like that on visit one. And then in order to ensure that there was no sort of sequence effect, like, oh, this was just the first shoe, so you're running lower here and you're running hotter later. Mm -hmm. um, they came back on a second visit and we tested the shoes in the reverse order for a given subject. Oh, okay. So we were able to yeah, take I was going to ask why there were two visits if you were going to do them all in one day. Okay. Yeah. So being, yeah, being able to get two trials on each shoe limits a lot of the variability. And then also being able to do the second set of trials in the reverse order also um, helps with that sequence effect being eliminated. Yeah. If, if we don't have so many comparisons that we can do every, like if I only was testing four shoes, I could do four trials and then reverse the order, do four trials, do it all in the same day. But with eight, eight, eight shoes, um, 16 reps would be a whole lot for one day. So we had him come back <laughs> yeah. for a second day to do that reverse ordered part. Yeah. Cause eight, eight times five minutes is like, you know, a reasonable tempo set. Yeah. It's really the protocol. The protocol takes a long time because you've got five minutes break between each. So it's like, for, you know, you're going 80 minutes, um, for that, that whole protocol. So for sure, for sure. Okay. Um, that all, that all makes sense. So I guess you were measuring when you were doing your gas exchange, you could, uh, figure out what, uh, what the oxygen consumption was. And that, that was the, the unit for comparison between the, between the different shoes. Yeah. Yeah. So running economy, you see typically expressed either as like the oxygen consumption at a fixed running speed or mm -hmm. the caloric expenditure or some, some, form of expression of energy expenditure but they you know that's derived from the oxygen consumption co2 production values though they, they pretty much go hand in hand when we're talking about this cool okay so uh let's get to the the fun stuff what did you find what did you learn yeah so you know i think the hypothesis going in was probably that 
the Nike shoes were going to do well based on previous data. Um, based on some of my pilot data and case study testing on myself, I, I figured some shoes like that Hoka shoe might not do so well. And then I, I suspected there'd probably be some stuff in between. And that's, that's about what we saw. Um, I was, I was surprised about how consistent the response was across people. So oh, okay. the, when we, when we looked at our statistics to like sort of make statistical conclusions from the study, the shoes that sort of rose to the top tier, um, you had the established Nike Vaporfly shoe, which, um, we showed in our study, um, was getting close to like 3% running economy benefit hmm. and kind of clustered with that, um, performing similarly was the Nike Alpha Fly which we would expect the alpha fly is what Kipchoge ran sub two in. Um, <laughs> That's right. You don't see as many elites running in the alpha fly now, but, um, uh, but it, you know, there, there wasn't any published data on the alpha fly, um, prior to this. So, um, so the alpha fly performed similarly, actually a little better, but statistically, um, similarly to the vapor fly. And then the only, the only other shoe that actually sort of raised up to the level that Nike shoes was the, um, the ASICS Metaspeed Sky. So ASICS new, new super shoe. Hmm. Um, so that stood out, um, the shoes that didn't do so well. Um, so relative to the control shoe, the shoes that didn't offer any benefit were the, the Hoka, um, Rocket X in this case, those when we were okay. testing from Hoka. So was, that was your initial shoe? Uh, yeah, well, actually when I did my piloting, I was in the Carbon X, but the Rocket X technology oh, okay. is, is quite similar. So yeah, same, same kind of foam mm -hmm. and plating, I think. Um, and then- the other one that didn't do um, so well was the Brooks Hyperion Elite Two. Um, so those those were statistically similar to the control shoe, and then you kind of had your mid mid tier ones that were offering some benefit, probably in like the one and a half percent range or so, um, but not quite to the same level as the Nike shoes and the the Asics uh, Metaspeed Sky. That was the New Balance RC Elite and the Saucony Endorphin Pro. Got it. Now, when we uh, when we were talking about the you know what made a super shoe a super shoe, you were you were talking about foams, and then um, you know I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like you you thought that the foam was really uh, the the primary driver of the improvement in efficiency. So, where do these shoes use different foams, um, and do you know what they are, and how does the 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 foam material compare with um, you know the improvements in uh, in efficiency that you observed? Yeah, so that's that's a challenging part. I think the thing that's kind of most proprietary, at least in name, among these different shoe companies still is like what they're calling their midsole foams and what they're disclosing about their midsole foams. Oh, uh, okay. And so, you know, in a lot of instances, you can figure out what like the base material comes from, whether it be like EVA, TPU, or PIVA. Mm -hmm. um, in some instances, you can't even find that. Like, I don't even know if, uh, like the Metaspeed Sky, I don't even know if they actually say what that is. Um, but we know like for like the Nike shoes, that's a PIBA based foam, um, that goes into Nike zoom X foam. Um, we know for the Saucony endorphin pro that's a PIBA based foam. Um, so we do know for some of these shoes, like we know for the Hoka shoe that didn't do so well, that's an EVA foam. So you would expect kind of perform as traditional EVA shoe and that, that kind of stands out there. Right. Um, but you know, even, even among shoes that, that are kind of from the same base material, what happens in the manufacturing process and the materials process and. Um, I don't have that sort of chemical engineering or materials <laughs> background sure. to know exactly how that plays out. But anybody who's sort of run in like the Nike Zoom X foam, that feels different um, than the the Piba base foam and the Saucony foam. Um, and so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've run in both. Uh, they do feel different. Yeah. 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 And so, it would, you know, s future research, I think, I think we've got a collaboration going right now. Um, 
with uh, Jeff Burns at University of Michigan, who's doing some materials testing on these shoes. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll tell us a lot in terms of the different foam properties, maybe independent of just what we're calling these or what kind of funny proprietary trade name we give them. <laughs> um, but I think that's that's probably the biggest thing right now. Um, you know, there was a, there was another study that the uh, Valter Hochammer, who did the original Vaporfly prototype study, um, they did a they did a cool study where they sliced up the plate in the um, the Nike Vaporfly shoe, and they so they basically like reduced the longitudinal bending stiffness or the effect of the carbon plate. Oh, okay. Um, and the shoe still performed. The shoe still performed very similar to an intact um, version of the shoe. So which which would suggest that you know a lot of what's going on is the foam there. Um, so I think I think more and more of the evidence in that light is kind of you know is is making that the the obvious point now. Um, but I, I still don't think that makes like an easy answer for consumers always just given that <laughs> that that still seems to be the part that's kind of like the most wishy-washy and knowing what is this? Is it the same as this? Is it not? Yeah. So this gets to, uh, I'm going to jump ahead from my, my list of questions, but you you just uh, did a really nice segue into it. From a consumer standpoint, right? And the the, the listeners to the show probably fall into this category. Um, if they're trying to decide what, uh, what shoe they're going to buy, is there any kind of uh, field testing that they can do? I mean, Unless they want to fly down to uh, East Texas and uh, jump into your lab and, and do some of the testing that you have available or next time you do a study. Is there any way that we can uh, we can make informed choices uh, as consumers with the you know equipment available to us? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's a, a tough one. Um, yeah, let me rephrase it. Knowing what you know, if you were if you were you know faced with a decision of, of which shoe to buy, what would your shoe purchasing criteria look like? So I think yeah. So that if I step back in that light, I would I would look to see first what academic research is telling us. Like where is there published data to show which shoes are effective, which shoes are not, and that's probably a good starting point because we didn't really see like big differences. There wasn't like there was like anybody who was the best shoe for them was the Hoka shoe or the Brooks shoe. That wasn't the case. So it's like Mm -hmm. kind of as a starting point and probably rule out some shoes that haven't been shown to offer big benefits. Got it. Um, You know, and then if I can look at the ones that have been established, then I can make some personal like decisions based on, okay, I really like the feel of this one. I can kind of trust my instincts a little more there. Um, But I think from the subjective opinions that we've collected about these shoes among our participants, people weren't necessarily that great at picking the shoe that was best for them. So, <laughs> so if you're just starting with a whole mashup of shoes and are like, Hey, I kind of like this one, um, that might not always be the best guidance, but if you can kind of couple that with what we know about the academic research and then add your personal like opinions and comfort to that, you might make a more informed decision. But the the tricky thing is that the shoe market is always going to outpace the academic research, right? So, (laughs) you know, it takes several months for a paper to get peer reviewed and get published as papers working through that process right now. Um, And in that meantime, there might be a second or a third version of these shoes out. Um, And so, so it's, it's always going to be tough for the consumer to like kind of keep up with the marketing and the shoe company re-releases when the academic research is lagging a little behind. So, yeah. So I think, what do we do? Um, I think, I think lab-based testing is, is a viable option for some people. Mm-hmm. I think in our paper, we, in our conclusions, we kind of recommend that definitely if you're an elite athlete and you have reservations about what shoe is going to give you a competitive advantage or not, you definitely should, should seek out running economy testing in a lab. Mm-hmm. And even, even for some sub-elite athletes that are competitive, that have access or means or interest in that, or kind of your, your data and lab nerds, um, 
it's definitely something that I think should probably grow. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely common for endurance athletes to seek out laboratory based testing for things like VO2 max and lactate thresholds. Right. That's been done forever in performance labs, right? Not just in university labs, but, um, in performance testing centers and the equipment that you need to measure running economy is a metabolic cart. So if you're, if you're in a lab that can measure VO2 max, um, you can measure economy. Um, it's just, it's just testing oxygen consumption submaximally. And so I do think, you know, if I, if I ran my own performance testing center, I would be marketing running economy testing. I would say, Hey, bring in your shoes and here's a package that we can test. You know, um, hmm. I, I, I would be expanding that like in my testing services right now, um, in advertising that. And I think for athletes who are wanting to spend money on that kind of stuff, that's probably a viable option. Um, figuring out the, the protocols aren't that complicated. Um, so, so kind of establishing the protocols for that, but a lot of that can be done submaximally in a one, one session, mm-hmm. um, depending on how many comparisons someone's trying to make. And so, so I think that's one option, but you know, if, if people don't have access to that at all, or not interested in spending money on that kind of testing, then going back to, I think your, your original point is like, what else can we do in field-based testing? And I think it's, it's a little tougher there, you know, heart rate, if you, if you do some controlled reps, like indoors on a treadmill, Mm-hmm. controlled environment, you got the same speed, same environmental conditions, you know, and you kind of use a protocol similar to what you see in the, the research lit where you're, you know, five minutes on at a steady intensity, take a five minute break, change your shoes. You know, you could, you could look at your heart rate over that time period and see what it does. Okay. Um, and I think for the shoes that are really good and really bad, you'll probably see some divergence there in heart rate. Mm, okay. But for the more subtle comparisons, it's heart rates just Heart rate's more variable than oxygen consumption. Sure. Um, heart rate's going to tend to drift across that session more than oxygen consumption will. You, you have a more consistent steady state oxygen consumption measure on each rep, um, whereas heart rate will tend to drift a bit more. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a little bit harder to make some of those conclusions, I think, with heart rate alone. Yeah, you just don't have the resolution. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a little or more. Or you may noise. have to do more, you know, yeah, exactly. You may have to do a few more a few more tests instead of doing like the two that you you folks did. You may need to do more sessions, more yeah, more testing sessions to get it get through that. Yeah. And then from from our data, if we look at like the more subtle comparisons like the shoe you get 4% out of versus the shoe you get 2.5% out of, you might not see differences enough in heart rate there to to make that same conclusion. So, right. So that'd be the the tougher thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, that's not necessarily like a nice fun answer for the consumer, but, um, <laughs> sort of the reality of it, I think. Yeah. Sometimes there is no easy answer. Um, one, one thing I did want to know, and I've heard, uh, I've heard folks speak about this is, uh, how does, uh, you know, you, so let's say you can, you can determine that your, a specific shoe gives you a 4% or 3%, uh, boost in running economy or savings in running economy as well, improvement in running economy, savings in, in oxygen consumption. Uh, how does that translate to race results? That's the, yeah. kind of the, <laughs> the ultimate, the ultimate question. Right. Yeah. Good question. So, so there's been some work prior to any, well, maybe some in conjunction with shoe stuff, but, but prior to this, like super shoe stuff, there's been some work and looking at how changes in economy translate to actual time improvements. And, you know, at slower speeds, it's probably more of a one-to-one ratio. So I think some of the data would suggest like at 14 kilometers per hour and slower, Mm -hmm. it's probably more of a one-to-one benefit. So like uh, 4% benefit in economy should translate to about a 4% improvement in running speed and performance times. Okay. at faster speeds, that's not necessarily the case. It's probably, I don't know, if we were generalized, I think people throw out like you get maybe two thirds of that benefit. Um, okay. 
And so, yeah, at faster speeds, you know, the, the work of running at faster speeds goes up a little bit, a little bit less linear, a little more, um, spikes mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, part of that's due to like increased air resistance running at faster speeds. Yep. Um, and so yeah, aero drag, so is a there's a, there's a, there's a cool, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a cool paper. Um, it's by, uh, Shalaya Kip, uh, Cram and Hocomers group, um, from C Boulder. And there's a, there's a calculator in it that allows you to like input the economy benefits, okay. input your body size. Um, so it calculates drag and such, uh, input the paces that you're running at and the distances you're running over. And it'll actually translate whatever that percent economy value you have for your running speed, your body and so on to an estimated like time benefit. Oh, that's so, cool. You know, it's somewhat theoretical, but <laughs> sure. um, based on some real, real data. It's a model, right? Um, so that's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a cool model to, to try to get some idea. And if you look, I mean, if you just look at like the anecdotal evidence, you know, if you say in the, you know, the best improvements you see on average in these vapor fly studies, um, you know, 4% or so, and you're seeing performance times though, across like the observational studies at like these performance time improvements in the marathon and half marathon, you're looking at stuff more in like the two and a half percent range. Right. So that kind of goes along with this idea of you're getting about two thirds of that for those really fast runners. But this is great news for the rest of us who are not, you know, running <laughs> two twenty marathons or whatever. They're the you know the 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 three hour marathon crowd, even the four hour marathon crowd. That 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 the improvements there are going to be. Are, it sounds like they're they're better. Yeah. So that's okay. So one caveat with that would be, at a slower speed you are likely to realize more of that economy benefit, right? Or more of a full percentage benefit from that economy to like translated performance time. What we know less about is what is the actual economy benefit at those slower speeds. So most, most of the published lit has been at 14 kilometers per hour and faster. Okay. Um, There's there's only one study out there that, that looked slower than that. There's another recent study, but, um, so yeah, that's, you know, set 14 kilometers per hour is a three hour marathon, basically. So that's still sub three marathon or so pretty fast, um, runners. And so, yes, it's true that percent economy benefits should translate to more like full percent performance benefit, but we don't know necessarily if you're still getting 4% benefit when you're running at nine minute mile pace. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and so that's, we just wrapped up a study, um, and I'm, I'm trying to get that one written up now. We just wrapped up a study where we had about 16 subjects, eight men, eight women come through and we tested them at slower speeds. So we tested them at 12 and 10 kilometers per hour. And, mm-hmm. and from our my preliminary analysis, we're not seeing like the same three, 4% benefit there. We're looking more in like the one and a half, 2% economy benefit range. Oh, okay. And so, you know, you got less force going into that foam. Um, running at slower mm-hmm. speed. So that could be part of it. You're not realizing maybe the, the full potential energy savings of that foam. Um, and so, yeah, so yes, if you're getting one and a half percent benefit, you're likely at slower speeds to get that full economy benefit translated to, to performance. Benefit uh, I there. See. Okay. But that economy benefit might not be 4%. It might be a lesser percent. Um, and so, so like I said, most of the, most of the published research currently is, is at 14 kilometers per hour and faster. So um, so yeah, so we're going to get this, this paper worked up and, um, get that out. I think the shoes are still beneficial from what we've seen. Um, but it's just, there's, right. there's more variability at those really slow speeds and, and it's not as consistent of a response for everybody. Mm-hmm. So the advice for listeners is, is get your speed up to 14 kilometers an hour, which is yeah, right around what, what like a four fifteen pace or so for, 
yeah, minute per kilometer for us metric folks. Um, yeah, and then and then you're getting you're getting the best bang for your buck for these uh, these really expensive yeah. shoes. We could we could at least be more confident with the the data that's out uh, there already. Saying that, probably. yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, this is great because actually we we um, sort of walked into my my last question was was how generalizable the the data is for the everyday athlete, and which is exactly what you just spoke about. Um, so then the only thing that that I have left to ask is, uh, you know, you you suggested that shoe companies, shoe technology moves pretty quickly. What are you looking forward to seeing next? Is it going to be evolutionary or revolutionary? Uh, what are you excited about in shoe tech in the next few years? Yeah, that's I don't know. So I think the biggest question to me would be over the next five to 10 years, does the playing field like level out? Cause I think that was, that was kind of what we established here was that the current racing shoe market is not even, um, there's some shoes performing quite a bit better. Yeah. So, so that would be my question, I guess, with the, the new foam tech to the other companies catch up over the next several years and and in that meantime, does Nike run away with it more? I tell, I guess, you know, if you engineered the perfect <laughs> foam that like harnessed all the energy you put into it and returned a hundred percent of it in terms of its resiliency, then, you know, every, we couldn't do better than that. But, um, I think, yeah, I think my bigger question is like over the next five, 10 years or how long does it take for those other, other shoe companies to catch up? Cool. Um, will be interesting. I think, you know, you got some questions on, Will things be regulated? How will they be regulated? You know, World Athletics, um, who oversees track and field and road races, have, have put some regulations in place in terms of like the stack height of shoes, um, both on the roads and on the track. And so right. um, they seem to have settled on some things there, whether or not any of that changes in light of any new data that comes out. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, listen, Dustin, this has been great. This is uh, this is an episode that we've uh, we're we're well overdue on doing because it, it fits so so tidily into our kind of our mission of of talking about innovation and in endurance sport. And uh, when we were, you know, what blew my mind is when we were before we started recording, listeners, uh, we were talking about um, when these shoes first came to market. And Dustin, you were saying 2016 and Rio were the were the very first ones. But in my mind, and maybe this is tinged by like you know the COVID time warp, but I it feels like they've they've been around for for almost. 10 years now so it hasn't been very long for this technology to have been well maybe developed longer but uh on the market anyway yeah definitely i think the hype and how much focus and attention has, has been on them has kind of like gotten us probably tired of talking about the shoes a lot of people <laughs> saying it's not, how can it all be about the shoes and certainly not all about just the shoes there's still great performances sure. going on right um but yeah yeah the first published research that vaporfly paper um was in the 2017 early 2018 um, but yeah, the prototypes were out. That was, that was actually, that's a point of controversy. It was 2016 in Rio. This is the, the top finishes in the marathon. There were the only ones in those, those new prototypes. So probably <laughs> gaining some benefit that the others weren't, at least everyone now, you know, has access to the same shoes depending on their, their sponsorship and whatnot. But mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, listen, as I said, this is, uh, this has been great. Thank you very much for, for taking the time and, uh, and sharing your knowledge. Um, if, uh, people want to follow your research, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So, um, on social media, I am, I'm not actually on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. My Instagram account is actually a little kind of blend of like research publications, um, from my own lab, from other labs, and then a lot of like case study testing stuff that I do on myself. 
Um, so kind of what got this started. So, you know, we've tested what happens to a pair of alpha flies if the airbags are popped on them. We tested what happens to a pair of alpha flies that have 400 kilometers on them. Do they still get the same benefit? So, so that's my fun Instagram account. It's, um, it's at lab rat rundown. So lab rat rundown. Okay. Um, yeah, no, we'll the, link uh, to it in our, in our show notes too. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, the the uh, old alpha fly. So first off, I think a bigger consumer question is how long do these new foams that are giving you all this benefit? How long do they last? Yes. And um, and so from from my case study testing, when I tested my alpha flies that had 400 kilometers on them against a brand new pair, um, mm-hmm. they do pretty comparable. So that's good news. So you don't need oh, to buy yeah. a 200 275 dollar shoe every every 200k that you put on it. Um, yeah, because so I remember I, when they first came out, that was one of the biggest fears, and that's that's what the the recommendation was that they you know only wear them on race day because they'll only last I don't know I can't remember like two hundred miles or something. Like they they was yeah. not very, it was not billed as a very robust shoe. Yeah, I think there's probably more concern with maybe like since these since the racer shoes don't have like a bunch of like outsole rubber on them. Yeah, okay. um, like wearing down that and just like eating up the shoe as opposed to the foam like losing its like you know compliant and resilient properties that make it beneficial. And he's more concerned with just mm-hmm. like roughing up the shoe um, over those number of miles. But I think if you keep it, keep it in decent shape, um, you know, I, I get, I, I'm usually around four, four and a half percent economy benefit in alpha flies. And I was, I think in my brand new pair, I was like 4.5, my old pair, I was at four. So pretty similar. Um, hmm. And then uh, what happened if you popped the airbags? I'm <laughs> yeah, curious. So, that, no, so I we asked that, what, I what asked that, that question, itself. not really like, it's like, why would anyone do this? You know, some people have stories like <laughs> they stepped on a, uh, a, a thorn or something in a race and one of their airbags yeah. popped and it feels weird. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I had less interest of it from that standpoint, but more like just asking the question of like that element of the shoe, like how gimmicky is that element of the shoe or versus yeah, how much okay. is it actually benefiting? Like if you just replaced it with foam, would it do the same thing? Um, and I think that airbag is probably a little stiffer than the foam, so um, might might have some different properties. But yeah, so somebody somebody sent me an old pair um, to uh, to voluntarily let me pop the airbags on them and test. <laughs> so we we popped all the airbags on them. Um, so it's not like I was like riding all crooked on them, but I think I was still, I was still like 3% benefit in the pop shoes versus 4% in the good shoes. And so, <laughs> which is, which is funny enough, like that's better than most other shoes that I test on myself. So now the, the Alpha Fly yeah. is my best shoe, like personally. Um, and so, so yeah, that's still better than most other shoes. Not that I would like, <laughs> would, would probably recommend doing something like that, but it was just a way of getting at like, hey, what is this element doing or contributing to? So oh, that's super cool, uh, super cool. I'm, so, I'll- so yeah, we got some testing like that, testing, testing some other other like. So we didn't have the Adidas shoe in our lineup when we tested. We didn't have the Puma shoe. Right. Um, I've I've gotten some of those on my own over over the last several months, or some people have sent me some shoes as well um, to kind of do some case study comparisons. So so yeah, that's my my lab rat rundown account. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm definitely going to be following along, and uh, listeners, I recommend it too. Um, thank you. I uh, you know my only ask is that you keep you know keep me posted on anything else that you come up with now that we're now that we're connected because I'm always really keen on uh, on uh, keeping my finger on the pulse of this kind of stuff. Even though you know my primary interest still remains the bike, uh, the running stuff is is always super super fun to follow along and there's there's a, a ton more runners than there are cyclists out there so that's uh you know that's a it's a pretty big market so um dustin thanks again for your time and uh yeah uh, all the best in your research 
Hey, thanks, Michael. Enjoy talking with you. Thanks. And uh, listeners, as always, thank you uh, for tuning in and spending a little bit of time with us. Uh, if you enjoy the conversation, uh, and especially if you learn something, then tell a friend. Uh, help us grow the, the audience for this show. Give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And uh, also consider supporting us on Patreon. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.